ओम ज्ञान तुम्हेंदानंदनाशलाकाया ंग And in the context of doing so, the importance of bhakti has been indicated. Without the ingress of which into bhakti, then yoga will not be successful. And furthermore, the superiority of bhakti as a means of connecting. With the absolute over yoga unto itself, is coming out has been coming out. We've seen some affectionate dealings between Krishna and Arjuna, and some thoughtful questions on Arjuna's part. Good answers from Krishna, as we might expect. And uh, so today, Krishna says, after explaining. That there's no fear about there should be no fear about being successful or, or about not being successful in the practice of yoga in terms of realizing the its uh, ideal paramatma feature of the of the Godhead and uh, then Krishna says what he says tapas bibhyo diko yogi gani bhyopi mato dika The yogi is superior to the ascetic, superior to the gani, and superior to the ritualist as well. Therefore, Arjun, be a yogi. And then, in the concluding verse, he says, "Yoginam api sarvesham madgate nantaratmana." Shraddhavan bhajate jomam samayukta tamo mataha. Of all yogis, he who abides in me with full faith, worshiping me in devotion, is most intimately united with me and is considered the best of all. So, as we've seen in the first six chapters of the Gita, a number of different disciplines have been described. Karma has been described, and this I mean as a path, the path of righteousness and religiousness. We talked about this to some extent yesterday. There's a difference between religion and experiential and essential spirituality. Arjuna was a very religious person, pious, and and so forth, righteous. He had personal integrity, and um, he's shown this. Uh, Throughout these uh, early chapters, he's thoughtful, also. So, as a path, here, karma means, or ritualist, it means uh, the uh, religious orientation to life that I was talking about, and superior to that, with the ingress of. The idea of yoga into karma. We have karma without 
karma. Karma without karma, without desire for the fruits of one's work. Not karma or ritualistic prescribed duties given in the sacred texts for different classes of people for the sake of attaining the fruit, for example, of heaven. That's why most people perform the, these prescribed duties and conform and so forth, because there's a fruit at the end. But to forego the, the fruit of heaven, to not allow that to fuel one's rising to the occasion of acting in a dharmic manner, this is to then uh, start to turn this uh, religious and ritualistic orientation to life into a, into a spiritual life. So it's that ingress of selflessness and uh, foregoing of the fruits, dealing with desire. Desire is what fuels and makes the world go round. So from karma to we can say karma yoga or nishkam, nishkam karma yoga, as it's referred to in the Gita. And from this, then, some knowledge starts to come within us as to the difference between matter and spirit. That there is, uh, rather than going to a better material situation, to go to a categorically different position, which is your own spiritual position, to understand that that desire is coming from a living being and that the body is only matter and it's a, it's a dead thing. It's animated by the life of the soul, but the soul has a life of its own. After all, as Prabhupada used to like to say, desire is a symptom of life. So then to live appropriately, in one sense, is to have the right desires and more so than having the right desires and dharmic desires for better and better material life, do not desire in relation to matter, but in relation, perhaps we could say, to our self, which would be synonymous with, with selflessness, and especially when we take the sense of self and extend it to its origins, to the Godhead, and desire in relation to the satisfaction of the Absolute. So, this way we've heard about, we haven't gone through it all here, but in those who've studied the Gita previously, all these things are discussed. And it's really been given in a progression leading to this chapter in Astanga Yoga, where that person who has been righteous and led the Dharmic life and has come to understand the futility of material pursuits, even the best of, of them, will fall short in terms of satisfying us, starts to practice to deal with the desire that fuels the world in an appropriate way, as I say, and starts to experience the self within. An ingress of wisdom comes from acting without the desire for the fruits of one's action. So from the outer world of acquisition to the inner world of experience, to experience the experiencer, we are experiencing matter without realizing or thinking so deeply about the fact that there's a difference between the experiencer and the experienced. But as we turn within and start to experience ourself, examine the experiencer, 
rather than that which is experienced matter. Yeah. This is a different orientation to life altogether. So, when one becomes more accomplished in that, as we've heard, through proper action, one develops the capacity to sit and think more deeply. One comes to Gyan and starts to understand the deeper meaning of the scriptures, the esoteric meaning of the scriptures, rather than the exoteric meaning of the scriptures. So one's interest is piqued then, and one needs to sit down and uh, look more deeply into the scriptures. And while there was action that called our progress, appropriate action, without attachment to the fruits of activity, we move towards an inaction of gyan, another kind of action now in, in this chapter has come, the action of applying that gyan, that knowledge, that inner wisdom, that sense of um, self, independent of matter, to apply ourselves in relation to that. That is what yoga is then, as described here. So there's an emphasis in this chapter that we don't see elsewhere in these first six chapters, an emphasis on, a, on, a, on an actual uh, sadhana, an actual spiritual practice to hone this inner knowledge. And it involves the controlling of the senses through various yogic disciplines and the stilling of the mind, kind of the arresting of the mind and the clearing, as we've discussed, of the mind of all the all the, the waves in the ocean of the chitta, of all the brittis, and making it placid and calm so that it can reflect as a mirror does or as a pool of water does accurately the uh, image that it's facing. It's facing the world, to see the world for what it is, something like that. Um, so there's, a, there's an emphasis here on action in relation to the inner landscape. To come to this, the point is, and within the context of that, to come to the point of actually being able to engage in dhyan. Dhyan means meditation. That is considered a progress, the most progressive step, if you will, on the ladder of yoga that's been discussed thus far. And so Krishna says here that more or less of all that's been discussed thus far, what's been discussed in this chapter, the person who has this capacity to engage themselves in this way is in a superior position. And, of course, the realization that corresponds with this path of Astanga Yoga is that of the Paramatma. Brahman and more, the Paramatma. These are different features of the Absolute that we've described and discussed, I should say, already. So he says, be a yogi. This is better than anything thus far. But if we understand it properly, we see it's not something you can do immediately in the way that it's discussed here, but there's a, there's a progression to arrive at this and then to participate in inner life by, as I say, really harnessing, harnessing the, the restless mind. But when he ends the chapter here, in these two verses, first he underscores the position of the yogi. But he goes on from here and he glorifies bhakti, which is going to take us into the whole middle section of the Gita. And he wants to really say that 
So you might be asking then, I've said best to be a yogi, is there anything better than that? And this is the answer, to be a devotee, which through devotion as a sadhana, as a practice, rather than yoga, we come in touch with Bhagwan, rather than Brahman or Paramatma, which is the full feature, the full face of the Absolute, with Leela, with various forms of avatar and, and, and so forth. The full, you can understand, full life within, rather than to sit within, and in contrast to the movement of the world that's after things that as soon as you get there they you know they disappear they slip through your hands you buy them with your credit card and then you end up later just having a bill to pay where they are they're broken somewhere or something or you don't know where it is anymore it doesn't work anymore or something (laughs) so material life is like that we are moving in relation to things and the things disappear and so it's very disconcerting it's hard to get our feet on the ground so rather here movement in, in within another direction in relation to an object that's uh, immovable in a sense, permanent, and has life, Bhagwan and Leela. So there's spiritual life here, rather than just the cessation of material life and the peace that may come from that. Mm-hmm. Yoga takes us a little further than that, as we said uh, here, the optimum up to Shantarasa, but when we interface with Bhagwan through the appropriate practice of bhakti, then the possibilities are much greater. So he wants to say that this bhakti is not the best kind of yoga, but it's it's better, it's, it's in a different category almost unto itself of all spiritual disciplines. It's entirely a descending discipline rather than relying on something from this side to go there, to the other side. It's not, as we said, technique-oriented as much as it is grace-oriented by far. So this verse is very nice, this final verse, that uh, is like the uh, sutra that uh, leads into the um, kind of theological necklace of... uh, middle chapters of the Bhagavad Gita. It rests, Sutra means like a, like a thread also. All the beautiful gems uh, that come out in the middle six chapters, the theology of the Gita. Krishna begins to, sp- begins to speak more and more about himself. He hasn't said much about himself thus far. In a sense, he's prepared us for that. He's preparing Arjuna. Because in these middle six chapters coming up, He's, like I say, he's going to be talking about himself. In order to listen to somebody talk about themselves, you've got to like them. <laughs> you, or you have to have some faith in them. He's going to say things that are pretty outlandish and, uh, about himself. And it's just not for everybody. And we find that people experience that reading the Gita. When Krishna really starts talking about himself, I mentioned this the other day, they start thinking, this guy sounds a little egotistical. I don't know if I'm into this. He's saying, everything comes from me, and just worship me, and there's no truth higher than me. And it's a little, sounds a little <laughs> over the top. Who is this guy? Well, that's, some faith has to be created in who he is, awakened in who he is, to hear that, understand, and to relish that. So he's kind of laying the groundwork for that here. And here, the path itself, 
which requires some faith to traverse systematically, is described, and that's mentioned here, both the beginning of the path and the end of the path. He says, Yoginam opi sarvesham. So of all yogis, sarvesham yoginam opi, of all yogis. And as I mentioned the other day, maybe the first day we spoke, of all yogis, uh, Krishna is, dis- is uh, certainly uh, distinguished. He's uh, described at the end of the Bhagavad Gita as Yogeshwar, which means the master of all yoga, the master of all mysticism, by Sanjaya, who's quite a mystic himself, who's seeing the Bhagavad Gita within his heart, the conversation between Krishna and Arjun in the palace and explaining it relating the conversation between Krishna and Arjuna to the blind king, Duryodhan, when the battlefield is many miles away. So that would be considered pretty mystical by today's standards. And he says at the end of the Gita that uh, this person that I've been talking to you about, Duryodhan, who's conversing with uh, with Arjuna, you should know, Yatra Yogeshwara, Krishna, he's the master of all yoga. Later in Bhagavatam, Bhagavatam is the sequel to the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita, Krishna teaches about himself, and Srimad Bhagavatam is the story of himself. Here he teaches all these things in the Bhagavatam, his life example plays them all out. And it's related there by Vyas, who in Samadhi of Bhakti, Samadhi Nanusmaratadvicheshtitam. He realized all these leelas of the Bhagavatam and recorded them, wrote about them, as best as words would serve his purpose to explain. We call it Samadhi Bhasha. What kind of language is it that Vyas wrote in? It's a language of, uh, of Samadhi. He incorporated some other things in there of the time to give it a whole Puranic setting. But the essence of it comes in the revelation of Krishna Leela and its significance. And we should know this about these types of books. That's what they're really about. Sometimes we find that devotees become confused or ordinary people become confused when they hear different explanations of the text that don't match up with modern findings or today's world or science. And so forth. But these aren't books about science. These books encourage us to use science as much as it has its utilization to use your intelligence, to use your senses, to know things. These things aren't, uh, such means of knowing are not dismissed altogether in the text by any means. We're asked to use them to their full measure and realize thereby the limitations of them in terms of arriving at comprehensive knowledge. And thus from there, adopt what the texts are actually advocating, a transrational method for coming to comprehensive knowing. And comprehensive knowing means what? Comprehensive knowing may mean not being concerned with other types of knowing, lesser types of knowing. So there's a way, for example, to examine material nature, for example, in science, in great detail and so forth. But the Bhagavatam is not as concerned with that. It invokes, to be honest with you, the current science of the time in terms of its description of the cosmology and so forth and so on. It kind of puts that in there. But its real message, what the book is about, is something else. It's about how to arrive at an objective 
understanding through a radical approach to detachment, radical in that it involves attachment to Krishna, to bring about detachment that gives one the objectivity to see the world as it is, and to see the world as it is is to see it as something that's here today and gone tomorrow and not worth exercising oneself in relation to in consideration of the fact that what we are in pursuit of is enduring happiness. So we're not going to get enduring happiness in connection with things that don't endure. So this is its basic message, of course, and then then that which endures and his nature and so forth and all this is described in great detail to give us positive impetus to go in that direction. That's what these books are about. It's a pretty important topic. And they don't dismiss, as I say, other means of knowing, but they emphasize that, that knowing this, knowing Bhagwan, there's a particular method that's required for that. And this is what's important. So, uh, anyway, Bhagavatam is the sequel to the Gita, I'm saying. Krishna is described by Sanjaya, the mystic, as, as Yogeshwara. In Bhagavatam, then he's described as Yogeshwara, Yogeshwara. For example, I think I mentioned this the other day in relation to the Gopi Vastraharana Lila, when Krishna comes and steals the clothes of the gopis. Now there's a chance, to, an opportunity for someone to think, what is this about? What kind of book is this about? What are you advocating here? Uh, so the Bhagavatam's careful in its language. Sukadeva says, Yogeshwara, Yogeshwara. He came and stole the clothes. The master of all myths, the master of the master of... Of, of mysticism. He, he doubles it. He, he wants us to know this is not a, an ordinary thing. This is very extraordinary. And uh, it will be understood by the bhakti that's exhibited like that of the gopis. You have to stand naked before God, something like that. Huh? Not hold anything back. This is the idea. Come before him naked, hold nothing back. Be fully exposed in terms of all your shortcomings. All their paths tend to allow us to kind of hide our shortcomings to one extent or another. As we discussed, this Bhagwat's approach, the bhakti approach, is replacing this enjoying ego that we're possessed of with the serving ego. Not just eradicating the enjoying ego, but replacing it with a serving ego. This is very extreme. So, it really doesn't allow us kind of any room. Therefore, the idea, the metaphor of standing naked before God entirely, do with me as you like, is the idea. I'm your servant. I've got no, nothing, not even, not even my, my, my clothes, something like that. So anyway, Yogeshwara, Yogeshwara, master of all mysticism. Hmm? And he says this here, that of all yogis, so, it's important to know that this is a very authoritative statement. Krishna's making the statement, not Patanjali, who's written the Yoga Sutras, who's a disciple of Vyas, but the very person whom Vyas saw in his trance, and with his leelas and so forth, and wrote about in his final work, the Bhagavat, focused as it is entirely on, on bhakti. So he says, Krishna says, of all yogis, yoginam apisarvesham madgatenantaratmana shadhavan bhajateyo mamsa meyutatamomata. Both sides are there, he's describing, from shradha to 
Madgata, Antar, Atmana. Shraddha means what? Faith. It means the beginning. With faith that he's awakening in Arjun by taking him through all these different steps. Each one sounds better than the, than the next and so forth. So all these processes, they've all been gone through here. Now he comes a bhakti. Then he'll talk about bhakti entirely, but then himself. And, and all. then he'll reflect on the metaphysical underpinning of this world of bhakti in the final six chapters. So, Shraddha is the beginning. He's trying to awaken faith in himself. And that's, you know, it, that's take some effort. Faith in Brahman. Faith in Paramatma. That might be easier, in a sense, to, uh, we might think, to uh, track people to their more overtly, in appearance and, and description, transcendental Brahman is everywhere, beyond all the limitations of forms and so forth. Consciousness, undifferentiated, without the, without the differences that we have from one another that make our lives troublesome and so forth. A big black hole. Well, it's, I guess it's got it's light inside of it. You can get swallowed up in that. It's all. So people will be inclined to have some faith in that, perhaps, after having understood the temporal nature, ephemeral nature of this world and its forms, the limitations of form and so forth. We can easily gravitate towards a formless idea of the Absolute. We're all part of that. We're all one with that and so forth. Or then the Paramatma, a more developed idea of the Absolute. God in the heart, all pervasive in another way. But Krishna is just standing out and sitting on the chariot with Arjuna. He's even the chariot driver. He's like the taxi driver. Your taxi driver turns around and says, by the way, I'm God. Where do you want to go? <laughs> it's like, what? You know, you need a bit of an explanation for that. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I want to pay this guy. And, uh, you know, where is he going to take me? Something like that. This is uh, really, to put it in, you know, a modern context, this is what it's like. Guy picks you up at the airport. And on the way, you know, you could do a modern Bhagavad Gita or something like that. And soldier has to go to war and he's being taken to the airport by the taxi driver and just before he gets dropped off at the airport they have a little conversation <laughs> the taxi driver says by the way i'm god everything comes from me and so um this is what he's endeavoring to do to awaken faith in him and all of us and so forth and the, and the path that is categorically different than what's been described before not that there are elements within these other disciplines and paths that are not within bhakti, they are, but uh, there's, there's something much more to it, and the result of it is, is of course, very very, uh, very different as well. So, Shraddha, he mentions here, Shraddha, mm, this is the beginning. They worship me with faith. Ado Shraddha, Rupa Goswami says, the path begins with this, and that requires some sadhu sangha. Those who have faith can generate faith. And in that company, faith is generated, then we naturally want to stay in that company. We want to gather more and so forth. So in the context of sadhu sangha, that's how we find our guru. Well, one sadhu stands out with the command of the um, scripture and, and an example that is compelling and so forth. And so we make for a uh, relationship on this, this basis, and then we formally tread the path. Shraddha is like, like the seed of... Of the, of the tree of bhakti. So, from Shraddha to Madhgatena Antaratmana, 
we were talking about yoga samadhi and so forth. He says, to internally be absorbed in me. So this side is there as well. There's a beginning and there's action, just like we've heard with regard to yoga. That's appropriate action that's required in order for you to be able to sit. So within the context of bhakti, there are different stages as well. In the beginning stage, more readily lends to appropriate action. But the action is, the categorically different difference here is the action is not what you might want to do or any prescribed duties in the, in the karma marg or in the dharma shastras from the sacred texts. What is the action? It's not sitting in the yogic posture as has been described here. What is the action? The action is Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu Smaranam, Padasevanam, Arjunam, Mannam, Dasim, Sakyam, Atmani, Vedanam, all these things. These are all directly in relation to Krishna. It's one thing to do work and have your the motivating force for engaging in that, the fruit that's at the other end, the result that's at the other end. It's another thing then to work without being motivated by the fruit, but just because the work should be done, because it's the right thing to do. And then from that to have ingress of, of wisdom and knowledge, but still be attached to action, not be able to fully harness that knowledge and take advantage of it and become absorbed in it, still need some, you need to move in relation to the world. You can't feel comfortable without a little money in your pocket or something. So then to perform actions and mentally think, I do this action, offer it to God, something like this. That's a whole different thing from doing the actions of hearing and chanting. You can see there's a categorical difference. These are activities all directly meant for what? Pleasing Bhagwan. Chanting about him, offering arctic to him, offering prayers to him, serving his lotus feet, which means walking around his place, like the Dham or around the temple, Parikrama and so forth, studying his books and all these things. It's all just directly about him. It's otherworldly. The action part of it, in and of itself, is otherworldly. In previous disciplines, the action part is in connection with the world. In bhakti, we are in connection with the world. But the practices, even in the active state, so to speak, externally active, are all directly in relation to Bhagwan and otherworldly. The only thing that's worldly about them is our lack of absorption in them, perhaps that they are meant to gradually diminish and consume us, ultimately, in thoughts of him. So then inner life, this mud, then antaratmana, in bhakti, starts to awaken. So there's a parallel here in the yoga that's been described, astanga yoga. There's appropriate action so that you can sit and have an active inner life. And in bhakti, there's appropriate actions also. We should be busy in planting tulsi and building temples, and publishing literature about Krishna, and chanting, and reading the Bhagavad. And so these are the activities of the devotees. Madhita, Madhita, Pranam, Bodhayantas, Parasparam, Tushyanti, Charamanti, all these things. Sazatam, Kirtayantam, these are all going to come now in, in the middle six chapters. This is bhakti. So if we can arrange our life in such a way that this is our preoccupation, from that, and to that extent, this inner life is going to come. That's the um, kind of, if you will, the invisible participation in the world of, of Bhagawan. So 
he's in a way described the bhakti from from beginning to end here and he says from beginning to end this is the best thing of all it is the yuktatama yukt uttama yukta means what to connect to make a connection so yoga is for making a, a linking a connection with the absolute this is the yukt uttama the best means of uniting with the lord and it corresponds with the feature of the absolute that is the fullest. Bhagwan means Krishna. He exists like Brahman. He's cognizant like Paramatma. And he's full of ananda. Comparatively, then, this Brahman maybe has some little ananda. And Paramatma, some, Paramatma extends a little bit, this we're a little bit into the spiritual world, Paravyam idea. But the full feature of Bhagwan, Sri Krishna speaking here, the Yogeshwar, what he's advocating is that kind of bhakti that connects my devotees with me, as we'll see in these middle chapters. He's going the full distance here. This is Prajananda Krishna. He's playing the role of, of a prince in Dwarka. He's at Kurukshetra at the battlefield. He's discussing Dharma. His thoughts have to go to his previous visitation to Kurukshetra when he met the gopis at separation and so forth. He's talking about dharma. His talks to his devotees talk have to reach the pinnacle of prema dharma. And they do. This is this inner absorption is, that's described here, Madgatena Antaratmana, this is particularly characteristic of of the uh, Ragbhakti. As one becomes proficient in this, in Bhav Bhakti, one attains Sarup Siddhi and becomes qualified, therefore, to take birth in the Leela of Krishna in the world. And from there, further development, it's a little different than the Vaidhi Bhakti unto itself. You can practice the Vaidhi Bhakti unto itself and not become fully developed within, internally, and still go to Vaikuntha. That's a shortcut, but you'll end up very much short <laughs> in Vaikuntha. There will be no Sakirasa. Fully, no Vatsali rasa, no Madhurdi rasa. So it takes more faith then. You want such a high thing, why it's worth waiting for. You could stop short, go to Vaikuntha even. Big relief. That's why Mahaprabhu was not very happy with the Madhvas when he heard their doctrine as related by Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami. There is Gyan and Karma mixed in your path. And in the middle chapters, Krishna will sort through this as well. What is mixed bhakti? Bhakti mixed with karma, bhakti mixed with jnana, bhakti mixed with yoga. And what is shuddha bhakti? And that is his real message. So this is what he's glorifying here. And without any tinge of it, then there's no success in yoga, there's no success in karma, there's no success in jnana. So the idea is why not embrace it fully unto itself, shuddha bhakti, and get the full attention of Bhagwan. It's actually higher, but it's actually easier also. The less you have to depend on your own limited resources, then the easier the path actually is in the long run. And as we've been describing, this is a path for really fully depending upon the one who has all resources. Krishna means the very embodiment of affection. The whole progression, for example, from Brahman to Vaikuntha to Goloka, it looks like it's getting smaller. Brahman looks unlimitedly big. Vaikuntha looks a little smaller because it's got forms and it's depicted as a planet and, and, and Goloka looks like just a village. 
it's getting smaller, the idea. But the idea is getting bigger, more spacious, more accommodating, because there's more love there. It's not just accommodating, you know, you've got a lot of room. Move around, here you are. The desert is yours. The whole thing. Wow, that's pretty accommodating. You've got a lot of space, but there's nobody here. There's not a lot of affection here. It's a dry place. As I said before, I mean, you could live in a cave if you were living with someone that you love. That's a small little place. So love is, and affection is more accommodating, more spacious. Krishna is the personification of love, affection. When that's on your side, and the whole, the whole teaching is to learn how to love. In all of these yogas, the way it's emphasized in the beginning is how to not, not love. In other words, how to stop exploiting, stop being a, a taker. You know, the path in Ishkam Karmi was speaking exclusively about that, to see the difference. It's focused exclusively on how to not exploit, how to not conduct yourself in a way that is not love. The other path, then, is talking about the romantic life of Krishna, participating in that. So very different ends of the spectrum. There's no way that bhakti in its full face, full manifestation is going to be found within this karma yoga or jnana yoga or astanga yoga. But you can understand readily how bhakti can be included within all of these. So this is very kind of um, practical and uh, it's not a sectarian advocacy that Krishna is involved in here when he says of all types of yogis, in all types of yoga, and beyond all yoga is bhakti, is basically what he's saying. People may recoil at this, because everybody that reads the Gita doesn't necessarily practice bhakti. But how well they've understood the Gita, that verses like this helped us to uh, address that. So then, you know, in all of this, what is our position? Again, we come to this. We're lucky, that's all. We should not be proud. We're the best yogis. We follow the bhakti. No, because we understand bhakti. We have to understand we're lucky. It's our good fortune. Brahmanda Brahmite Kon Bhagavan Ji. Bhagya means lucky. And lucky means what? What does lucky mean in, in the Bhagavad language? It means sadhusanga. That's what lucky means. That you've got good association. That's how you got involved. So what's your credit? What did you do? Again, it's, there's no room here for being proud. Therefore, Mahaprabhu said, the decorum of the devotee, trinata pisunichena. He should be more humble than a, than a blade of grass because he or she knows, I'm where I am by grace, by good fortune, because somebody else's association wore off on me. They gave their association to me, and therefore, that's, as a bhakta, I'm made of that, as much as that as I have. It's because we grow in bhakti by sadhusanga. So we can make a statement like this. We can say, I'm proud to be a devotee of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. I'm proud. There's a good kind of a pride and there's a bad kind of pride. I'm proud that I'm included in this, this group, even though I'm not qualified, <laughs> even though I have no, uh, no, no qualification. So bhakti should not lend to any pride. But still, these statements have to be made. And that statement is about bhakti's efficacy. And bhakti is fully descending, so it's, a, it's, it's about the greatness of Bhagwan. And what do we say? Paramatma is worshipping Bhagwan. If Brahman could, he would also. <laughs> he doesn't have any hands to fold, though. But the Paramatma has four of them. 
And there, these are all brought out in Bhagavatam. The Vishnu wanted to see the Krishna and Arjuna. Here we're participating in, in hearing their discussion and exploring it at some some length. You know, in Bhagavatam, the Paramatma stole the sons of the Brahmin one after another, and then Arjuna couldn't find them, and he was a Chhatri, and he was concerned that, well, I put, I'm supposed to be able to conduct the kingdom in such a way that, that religious people don't have these things happen to them. What's going on? And so he made a vow that he would take his own life if he couldn't recover the sons of the, the lost sons of the Brahmin. As soon as they were born, they disappeared somehow. So Krishna came and said, well, I'm not going to let you commit suicide. Let's go. And then shh, they went up to the planet of the Paramatma, so to speak, one of the manifestations of the Paramatma in the world. And he got him up there and he said, yeah, I just wanted to hear the sons. I just wanted to get your, your darshan here. You and Arjun, Krishna and Arjun, I wanted to see you personally. The things you're doing on earth are wonderful. Good work there. He wanted the darshan. This is one of the examples, one of the many, many examples that Jiva Goswami gives from Bhagavatam to make the point of the Bhagavatam, that the principal point of Tatva in the Bhagavatam is what? Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna is who he is. Krishna, the source of Narayan. He has more affection. He manifests more affection, more love than Narayan, so he must be the source of Narayan, who we find some love in. He must be. So these kind of statements have to be made by devotees, but if they're making them with any kind of pride, then that's the extent to which they're not devotees, because they're not understanding what is bhakti. It doesn't have to do with our, what our qualification is, our abilities. It's all a grace. Like Pujapachita Maharaj used to say, this is to get in line. It's like if you're getting in line to, to receive some mercy. That's what it's about. And if in the middle of that we call for justice, then we have to go to the back of the line. Back of the line. Sridhar Maharaj, was, he described himself once as when he joined the mission early on of Gaudiya he had during a festival he was given the position to serve Prashad. They were serving halava, Prashad. You know the story, perhaps. And so one guy came and, and he gave him Prashad. And then after a while he saw that guy coming in line again, second time. Okay, coming back for more. He gave him Prashad. You know, they were feeding to a lot of people. Then he came, he saw the guy coming. Third time he's coming. So Sridhar Maharaj was there and he hesitated to give him the third time. And the other, the older devotee who was there, he said, what are you doing? Are you distributing food or prashadam? Prashad means mercy. <laughs> the more they come, then this, the guy wants mercy. How can, you, <laughs> how can you say, wait a minute, we've got to bring some justice down here. You've had enough mercy. You know. <laughs> no, but are you distributing justice? Or are you distributing food or are you distributing mercy? So he, he used to tell that story, and uh, it's uh, significant in regards to what we're speaking about. So if we understand the bhakti appropriately, there's no question of this pride coming, and there's every reason to proudly, nonetheless, make this statement, such as the position of Bhagwan. It means that this is the best path. He reaches out to us. Every other path is, we reach out to him, kind of to one extent or, or another, to get something from him, to get some material acquisition from him, to get liberation from him, to get to, to look at him, like the yogi, inside, you know, the darshan of the paramatma. And that, that's why, again, the, the shantaras is not very much played up. 
in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's tradition. It's like something to do, to get busy. So to serve him, that's an entirely different approach. What are you here for? What would you like? I just want to serve you. <laughs> really, that's odd. That's different. The doors will be opened. So because he's reached out in a particular way, we've been captivated by him. So we want to serve him. But it's his reaching out to us that makes the opportunity available. Therefore, it's the best path. It's connecting with him on his terms. He says, it's yuktotamo, the best means, because it's on my terms. It's what, it's what I want. And that's what service constitutes also. That's why Pujapachitamar said on another occasion, if you offer the flower to the guru, he says, no, 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 I don't want that. He said, no. The first time it was bhakti, and then if he says, no, I don't want it. the second time you offer it, it's not bhakti anymore. He says, no, I don't want it. No, take it. Bhakti comes from up to down. This is what we have to learn. It's what Krishna wants of us. That we're trying to figure out. And we're happy with whatever it is. Therefore, we shouldn't come before the guru and ask, Guru Maharaj, I would like to do this. What do you think? And you're not prepared to hear, no, that's not a good idea. You want to hear, no, that's not a good idea. Okay, whew, forget it. That won't help me. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or you want to hear, it's a good idea. Okay, good. That's not like my idea. You cannot think between your ears what is Krishna Leela, come up with such a thing. This has to come from... And that's the experience devotees get when they start reading Krishna Leela. They think, this is incredible. How this all connects like this? This is just amazing. Nobody could have thought of this. If you study Krishna Leela, you start to get the... You start to get the it's interesting, you get the whole experience of the Paramatma, that everything's connected. So that's concluded within there, of course, and it's a special kind of existence and fueled by Ananda. So it's the best path. This is what Krishna concludes with. Are there any questions? Yes? Because your English is not that good? No, I, it's just really amazing things you are telling them. I'm sure you will. But um, you were talking about prasad, mm -hmm. and I've been wondering, like, what is the magic behind the prasad? What the what? Magic, kind of like, because it affects the people, like, even though they are not devotees or something, and if you give prasad, they get kind of interested, or also it's said. Like uh -huh. or, or they get purified, or I don't know what is, uh -huh. how the prasad is working. And, um, because I have experienced also prasad, and I don't know, like, and what makes also prasad, like, can you be sure that it's prasad when you offer? <laughs> now you can also, like, sometimes I doubt, like, when I make yeah. prasad, or is it prasad? And <laughs> the best prasad is that which comes without making any effort. <laughs> That's what Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur said. Better than what's offered, that which comes without any effort. That's the vision of higher devotee. Krishna is sending it for me to eat. That is his mercy. But before we can see like that, then we have to go through some process of officially making offering and so forth and so on. Gradually we come to a higher position and see, in other words, his hand behind everything. Beginning we have to see him somewhere. So put him in a room, in a closet, in a box and go and offer to him and so forth. And uh, then gradually, 
you'll see his, the universality of the deity, and that's a higher thing. Otherwise, prashad, with regard to your food, as you're as you're speaking about it, you want to know what makes it prashad. What makes it prashad is that Krishna accepts it. So then you're wondering, well, I don't know if he accepted it. I didn't. I didn't see it. Came back, you know. Everything's still there. So uh, I think that in the beginning, what helps us in this regard is that we know that our our guru has been kind enough to accept service from us. We know that, and we know that he's representing Krishna and Guru Parampara. So we know that we've got some acceptance there through that link, through that connection, and so therefore. When we offer prasad, then we offer our respect to our guru and so forth, and and um, and so we kind of bank on that, so to speak, that we do our part as best we can, go through the motions and give as much devotion as we can muster in our heart, but we have confidence because he's in place and mediating and so forth. That's that uh, Krishna will accept us. After all, that's his outreach to us to the guru. Krishna's outreach to us. That is his mercy. That is the Kripa-avutar, the mercy of Bhagavan in the fullest form of Prashad is the Guru. So, um, then other than that, what the distribution of the Prashad, how, how, how does it work? Because you, you're wondering, I guess, that we say that people get purified, but how do we know? And you don't see anything happens all of a sudden. There might be instances in which things happen all of a sudden. You see... It depends, and I think it's a good question in that sense. To what extent it's been accepted depends on what the extent to which it's actually been offered and then distributed and to whom and how it's been accepted on the other end. So there's a lot to it. If someone barely offers it and someone barely honors it, then you're going to have one end of the spectrum. If somebody really offers it and somebody really honors it. So this other side to it is honoring the prashad, we say we don't eat it, but we honor it. But some people just eat it, right? So, but there's some benefit for eating it also, is the idea. And um, generally, in situations like that, they're not honoring, honoring it because they have no really reason to it to honor it. They may honor, sometimes prashad is distributed to hungry people, so people honor the fact that, that these Vaishnavas are feeding us. So That's very nice of them. That's about as far as they go. But they're honoring the Vaishnavas, so that's very good for them. But at any rate, they get Sukriti. They get a kind of a, um, merit, if you will, that, that, that accumulates over time. And it starts unknowingly. Like I said, if you touch fire, you get burnt. So if you connect with bhakti, it's alive. It's a live current. So you get something from that. You may not feel it, immediately, but as it accumulates over time through other similar connections, it starts to form a particular psychology within us that gives us a conducive psychology to embrace the philosophy of bhakti. Why do you accept the philosophy of bhakti? Because it's the perfect philosophy? No philosophy is perfect in that no philosophy can not be argued with. People can argue against our philosophy. We do pretty good philosophically. It's a very good, it's a tight philosophy. It's, but, you know, you can argue with materialists, materialistic philosophy, and the arguments in and of themselves 
don't hold for a neutral party. There's a reason that someone is embracing a mater scientific materialism as a metaphysic. And then the reason that, and the reason somebody is embracing Gaudiya Vaishnavism as a metaphysic. And the reason is really psychological. And the psychology is formed as a result of our previous actions and interactions and, uh, uh, you know, our, our karma. And in relation to bhakti, if we get bhakti sukriti, we start to get, this is what sumedasa is, and Bhagavatam is described, sumedasa. Worshipping Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, embracing Gaudi Vaishnavism requires a certain type of intelligence. It means like this, Sukritivan, he has sufficient Sukriti to understand it. It makes sense to you. Not that it doesn't make sense, but philosophy can only do, and language and logic and so forth, can only do justice to something that lies beyond it to a certain extent. What we're talking about is beyond words. It's beyond thought. But we're in the world of thought and words, so we can think and talk about it forever and never say enough about it. You understand? But anyway, some people will be attracted to that. Those are the people who took that prasadam and like you, and suddenly you know, now it, you can't trace it all out, but there's a reason why you have a certain psychology that works with this philosophy. And from our scriptural vantage point, this is the explanation. People will give some other explanation in, in the psychology world, I suppose. You needed, you know, your mother didn't nurse you enough, so, you know, whatever, you know. There's all kind of secondary factors or ways from which to look at it and so forth. We have a particular way of, of looking at it based on our metaphysical worldview. Does that help? So the prasad, you know, in this way it creates some sukriti. And it, what happens is at a certain point that sukriti turns into faith. First, what happens is unknowingly you acquire this because you bumped into bhakti in some way. And then what happens is with some knowledge of what it is, you participate. And then at some point, that has accumulated to the point where you feel like, you know, I kind of believe this. This is like, I'd like to try this. This is, I think this is my path here. I think then that's called shraddha. And then we proceed in the context of shraddha, what we do is we associate with people who, who are like that too. In that context, we meet someone who represents it in a prominent way, and we think, here's my guru, so I, I take shelter here, and then we learn the practices, and then we practice them with a learning curve. It's called anishta, bhajana kriya. We try and we fail, and we try and we fail, and then we start to catch on gradually, and we, the failures that we have, our shortcomings, the results for that in no way measure up to the results of our successes. So we go forward. Sometimes we go forward to the highest peak like this. Sometimes it looks like we're going down, but from the long range we're going up to the mount, highest mount. And then our faith becomes strong because things get in the way of the faith and arthas is over the, they come out of the heart. Then we get ruchi, which means we become attached to the path itself. We like it. Previously it was medicine, now it's like our food. It's like a meal to come and sit, hear the Swami talk, participate in kirtan or whatever. We like it. Can't get enough of it. And then from attachment to the path to attachment to the object of the path, that means Krishna. That means in a particular way he manifests. And we have a corresponding love that's coming. Then you enter into bhava bhakti, cultivate that. 
Prem Bhakti. And it all begins with Sukriti. Like if you take a seed and you put it in the ground, then you water it, right? When it comes up the ground, you go, there it is, the plant has come. But before that, that's faith. And, and it's formally there. Before that, some roots are going down, invisible, that is Sukriti, like that. That help? Okay. Yes. How should we understand that statement of uh, maybe Chaitanya Shaktamrita that Lord Chaitanya will not un accept even water from a person who does not do 64 rounds? That's uh, Chaitanya Bhagwat. I don't know if it says water, but you know, it says he doesn't accept any, anything cooked by someone who hasn't chanted one lakh. Marsh said that the spirit of it should be embraced. The idea of one lakh is that you're fully in, engaged, something like that. Eight or ten hours or something like that. <laughs> to be, so the spirit of this, to be fully engaged. And in another sense, to be fully engaged means to be under the direction of a Vaishnava, to be serving under the direction of a Vaishnava, who will know your limitations and so forth. So, and you read, he didn't take it literally. So, to serve under the direction of the Guru and Vaishnava, then, then you know that your offerings will be accepted. Yes? I have yet another Prasadam question. Okay. Is it offensive to think that I don't want to accept this Prasadam because the person who cooked was somehow some discrimination may be exercised at a certain stage on the part of devotees in that regard. There are different kinds of devotees. We may not enter certain kirtans because we think it's, it's, this is not a kirtan that's conducted under the auspices of a Shuddha-bhakta or something like that. So the intermediate stage requires some discrimination like that, appropriate discri discrimination. Another question? Yes. I was thinking about the, when you said about the psychology of people who are, who want to embrace bhakti, there are the people who seem, who seem to be drawn to bhakti but somehow unable to take the final step, or like sitting on a fence and seem, seem attractive but yet unable to, to uh, surrender, I guess I could say. So what would be the best way for us to help them take that final step? Well, I think that um, you just have to create a friendly uh, uh, environment and uh, it's a question of their own sukriti developing sufficiently, provide opportunities for for such people to engage. And so we have different reasons for that. People may be stunted for in terms of going forward uh, for different reasons and you can't always sort out all the background of that so you just provide the opportunity for them to uh, be engaged and you have to elicit really a voluntary voluntary uh, participation I think create an environment that elicits voluntary participation on the part of people and uh, to the extent that they they exercise that and they feel good about that and then naturally they'll go forward I don't have any special thing that you know, I can recommend that you should do, like when you're asleep, you know, pour holy water on them or something like that. <laughs> so, what else? Any other question? Yes. 
Some people think Vishnu is highest. What, what's your question? Now? What is it based on that some people think that Vishnu is the highest? What What is it based on that they think that Vishnu is the highest? It's a particular um, devotional perspective. In Vaikuntha, people think like that. In Vaikuntha, yeah. It's Shuddha Bhakti in a, in, a, in a general sense. Some of these terms, just like yoga is being refined here, Shuddha Bhakti term will be re refined within Gaudiya Vaishnavism also. Prem is refined within Gaudiya Vaishnavism. But in the broader sense, Prem is there in Vaikuntha, Shuddha Bhakti is there in Vaikuntha too. But you can go to Vaikuntha by mixed bhakti, but you can't go to Goloka by mixed bhakti. But it's a particular angle, angle of vision, Narayan. Those who have love in awe and veneration, then Narayan, Vishnu, corresponds very nicely with that. And so they see from that perspective. That's okay. And it's no wonder that they object sometimes when we try to put forward the position that Krishna is the source of Narayan, because even in Vaikuntha they object to that. <laughs> they can't accept that. So there, there are different angles of vision. Krishna is like a valuable jewel, and you turn it one way and you see one thing, you turn another way another thing. So if we find people that are attached to that, then there's whole sampradayas like that. But they're practicing a certain kind of bhakti, vaiti bhakti. We're practicing rag bhakti. So we have a different perspective. They're practicing rule bhakti and we're practicing love bhakti, attachment bhakti. And we make our point not so much with a view to convert them as to make available this information for those who are destined for such. To collect them up. And we collect them up so that we hope we get some good association so that we can advance. We want more people to worship and associate with. So anything else? Yes. It has two parts. So first part is um, when our faith is real, and when is it just like kind of sentiment? And the second part is, um, what is the position of a person who is chanting Hare Krishna, but he doesn't have a spiritual master? What is the result? Of that? The first part is, when you start to ask a question like that, mm -hmm. is my faith real or is it sentimental? Yes. Then it's real. Then you're thinking about it, you're analyzing it, you're... And the second question is answered that what happens when to people who chant without a guru? If they chant sincerely, they get a guru. That's what happens. It becomes clear to them. Here is my guide as I can progress nicely here. And faith is a sentiment also. Faith is a sentiment. But it should be a sentiment that is, um, we call Shastriya Shraddha. A sentiment that's informed by by scriptural wisdom. 
there's different kinds of faith, faith in different modes of nature. But faith that is informed by scripture is in at least sattvic, and faith in bhakti is transcendental. So where do you get the faith? Where did the faith come from? You want to know if it's real. Where did it come from? Where do you get faith? You get it from people who have it. And so if they have it, <laughs> then you have it, I guess. So if you're convinced that somebody else has faith, and your faith is a result of associating with them, then your faith must be real. Does that make sense? And again, what happens to those who chant without a guru? If you do nicely with some understanding rather than out of a sentiment, but with faith that's informed, then your chanting is part of looking, searching for someone to help you chant systematically for a guide. Does that make sense to you? Of course, yeah. <laughs> it's got Sukriti. If you want to take up this path, then you would just want all the help you can get, right? But if we chant without a guru and we avoid the help in the form of the guru, we avoid the very people who have told us about the chanting, who have give, made the chanting available to us, and who, whose lives are dedicated to explaining the chanting, the significance of it, and so forth, then our faith is sentimental. And then our chanting is not very productive. Do you understand? Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's common sense. But they're good questions. When I first read one of Prabhupada's books, immediately I wanted, I wanted to... It was apparent you needed to find a guru, and it was obvious the person that wrote the book must be the must be the person to pursue who's telling me I should find a guru, because he had found a guru and he knew the value of that, and he could feel that. So to follow in his footsteps, Rupa Goswami says the beginning is faith, but also he says the beginning is taking shelter of the guru. Taking shelter of the guru means to come and sit before the guru, and hear and ask questions and so forth until they are answered sufficiently in such a way that I feel, hmm, the answers are here. I'm, I don't need to go anywhere else to find them, so I should stay here. And then then comes initiation and so forth, and a systematic, a kind of a coached approach to the goal. You get a coach. Then you get a jersey with a number and everything, but you sit on the bench. And then eventually you start to go out and play on the field too, of bhakti. Then you become a coach. <laughs> so, anything else? Yes. Guru Maharaj, how, how would you like us Finnish devotees to help uh, with the harmonist? Do you have any? Well, yeah, to write articles is the best thing. To comment on there, in the least make comments and reflect. So be, because we have a certain perspective that I want to share with the community and it's not, you know, heard that, that much. Um, and so when they make comments, then you share that perspective. And then articles. Oh. I remember some articles. Today's article was very 
much appreciated by so many people, so she should write more articles. And Sham Gopal promised me so many articles that I haven't seen yet. So, And people like those articles, too. And Gaudi Vaishnavism needs more of this. People on the path writing about their experience from their perspective, it kind of humanizes it. And, uh, you know, there's the lofty philosophy and technical terms and so forth. And somebody else says, I really like this, but I can hardly do it. And uh, they, they think, yeah, that sounds like me. There's more of this. I'm out there. And they become encouraged by that. And, uh, you know, and, and other traditions like Buddhism has flourished in North America and Europe probably too because so many people of European and, and um, uh, stock and so forth have taken an Eastern tradition and started to write about their experiences within it. And it makes it, it brings it really home to people. So those kind of articles are not articles that are beyond the can of, of anybody who's, who's practicing. And you, you think about things and you, you think about things from the perspective of your tradition and your practice and so forth. And you share those thoughts with your friends or your husband or your wife sometimes. And so you turn it into a small article, something like that in the least. And, and that's, uh, uh, would be very refreshing. We get a lot of nice appreciations for those type of articles. And then, of course, there's a place for other articles like reviewing books. You all read books. So if you read one, that's good for one reason or other. And they can be as, you know, like, I remember you gave me a book, Kashangi, once here. What was it about? The people who stopped shopping for a year or something like that. Yeah. So to write a review of something like that. Or how that, how that, I mean, maybe not even a comprehensive review, but how that book corresponded with how you thought you should think about Gaudiya Vaishnavism, how that has some application in there. This all helps to showcase kind of the universality of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, its themes extending out here, and they're being picked up by people to one extent or another here or there and so forth. And it helps the, the devotional community to be less insular, more integrated in a way with the world that keeps them uh, at the same time deeply connected to their, to their path. So that's, that's helpful. I'm just looking at the community internationally of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and I, you know, I see certain things in, in there. It tends to be insular, and there tends to be a, a negative impetus, a fear of the world kind of a approach. Actually, Gaudiya Vaishnavism is very worldly, world-embracing in, in, in the full sense of the term. So, anyway, we have a certain perspective, and, and we need, I need help to, to share that. So, and then, and then, and so there's the personal articles, there's reviews books, music, movies, things. I mean, you do, the, you do those things. You see movies, so you have to sometimes, I suppose, or read books. And, and then, uh, you know, philosophical articles or points of view on things that are going on in the society from a Krishna conscious point of view or within the devotional community. That would be good. It, it's really, you know, kind of in a way I created it for, for all of you to, to do that. And doing that's good for you also. It's not just good for other people, but it's good for you. It was good for me. Uh, Prabhupada gave me opportunity to speak about Gaudiya Vaishnavism to other people, to distribute his books and so forth. It was, it was a huge opportunity for growth. So times are different. Circumstances are different right now. I mean, I could tell you all to go to the Helsinki airport, you know, try to sell books under cover there or something like that, but I don't think we have the same results. So this is the airport, this is the street then, the, the harmonist. You go there and 
see what's going on on the street today and then you think about it and you make a comment about it and you participate in the in the space and um, share your views there and your experiences and then it would help you and you know you some of you say well you know I don't feel qualified and so forth I don't accept that <laughs> so what else okay We'll stop there. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Jageshwar Krishna ki jai, Gauri Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai, Gauri Bhaktivinda ki jai, Gauri Pramanda ki jai.